Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, I want to talk to you. Uh, I had it on my heart as soon as the pastor asked us if we would stay over. It just I was quickened on the inside to teach on a type of prayer tonight that you almost never hear teaching about anymore. I would call it almost a lost art in the church. Uh, in the church I grew up in, the older saints had an understanding of it, but it's almost like in this generation, not too many people have picked it up. It is a type of intercession. It's a form of intercession. And of course, the definition of intercession is standing between those who deserve judgment and holding the judgment back. And uh, because of our position in Christ, we have that authority and we have that honor of standing in the gap for the lost, uh, for backslidden Christians, uh, for people who have often false doctrine, uh, just a lot of different types of people, but we can stand between the judgment that should be theirs and hold it back through prayer. But this type of prayer that I want to talk with you about, let me get down to it. You know, we could go through, and I thought perhaps we might do that, but I think that we'd be here a long time if I did. We could go through and we would look, could look at some of the great intercessors of the Bible, like Moses and Abraham and Paul, Jeremiah. We'll talk a little bit about Jeremiah tonight. But... um. I really want to zero in on, on this particular type of prayer because like I said, you don't see that, you don't hear that much teaching about it anymore. And I'm really concerned because it seems like in the church, especially in America, we have a lot of conversions, but I'm not seeing a lot of births. You know, you can convert to Islam. You can convert to New Age. You can convert to Scientology. Because a conversion simply means you change your sets of, of beliefs. But in order to become a Christian, you have to experience a birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And when there is a birth, there is a lifestyle change. And that's what I'm concerned about that I'm not seeing. I'm seeing people that are, say they're converted to Christianity, but they're living the same way they always lived. So I'm questioning whether or not those people have truly been born again. And you know, even in the natural, when there's natural birth, there is a process, a travailing that takes place to bring new life into the world. And I think we've lost the spiritual aspect of that in the church that I saw a lot growing up. I can remember as a teenager helping my pastor uh, clean the church and we had wooden altar benches across the front. And after every service, you know, we would take time and we would all come. We would gather around the altar. We would pray, you know, for how long anybody wanted to pray. Generally 10, 15, 20, sometimes 30 minutes. But um, the older saints were always the last ones to leave. And as I was a teenager helping the pastor clean the church, I noticed that on the altars, there were these irregularly shaped indentations in the wood and I, I took my furniture polish, you know, and I was getting ready to spray it on and wipe over that. And the pastor yelled out, no, no, don't do that. He said, that's where the tears of the saints have etched into the varnish. And he said, that's a memorial. He said, don't touch that. He said, that's holy unto God. That's a memorial unto God. The type of prayer that I want to talk to you about tonight is the prayer of travail. Weeping, groaning, and travail. And it's especially effective in praying for the lost to be saved. Maybe the reason we don't see more new births is because we don't see much of this type of prayer in the church anymore. What is travail? It is groaning. It is weeping. It is crying out. Sometimes it's various sounds that are made. But it is an operation of the Spirit. And it can only be accomplished by the Spirit. You know, you can't, 
you can't do this in the flesh. You can't just call a meeting and say, we're going to have a groaning meeting. I know a few years in Tulsa while I was there, you know, people tried to have groaning meetings, and it was just a bunch of flesh. I went to one, not really understanding what it was, and, you know, it's like, okay, at 7 o'clock, everybody start groaning. And it was just ridiculous. You know, you can't do that in the flesh. It has to be an operation of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So this is talking about more than just praying in tongues. If, if it's groanings too deep for words, there was a Greek scholar named P.C. Nelson he said that this word groanings means groanings that cannot be uttered in articulate speech or spoken words. Well, if it can't be done in spoken words, then that would eliminate even tongues. Tongues are spoken words. So this is something that, that even tongues doesn't express. It comes from the deepest part of your spirit by the Holy Spirit. And it can't be expressed in words of any kind. It's a heart's cry to God. Now, this kind of prayer is better done in private than in a public meeting because lots of times in a public meeting there are new Christians, there are even unsaved visitors or untaught Christians, and they, they don't understand what's going on. It, to them, it just looks weird. But in a prayer meeting like this where you're being taught you know, and where people understand we've gathered for the purpose of prayer, you should expect to see some manifestation of travail in these meetings. You know, if you're in a public meeting, I know uh, one time we were in our, our church in Tulsa, and we had gone forward, I don't even remember for what, Pastor Mark was laying hands on people for various reasons, and he got to us and he had a word of prophecy for us, and we both fell under the power. Well, while I'm down on the floor, all of a sudden, travail came on me. And it was quite strong. Well, I knew that we had visitors and people from other churches there that night. And so I turned to my husband. I said, please help me get out and get to the prayer room. There was a prayer room right outside the auditorium. And I finished praying that out in the prayer room rather than, than be there in the congregation. So if you need to, you know, you might have to excuse yourself from a meeting and go to a private place. If you think there might be people there that didn't understand. But like I said, in a prayer meeting like this, that should become a normal part of your prayer life. Maybe not, you know, every meeting. It won't happen in your personal life every time you pray. But it should be somewhat regular. Let me share some scriptures about travail. Psalm chapter 126, verses 5 and 6. It said, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So we see that a part of, of reaping a harvest of the lost has to do with this kind of prayer, weeping, crying out before God. I mean, when was the last time, I'm not throwing condemnation out here, I'm just throwing out a question for you to ask yourself. When was the last time you wept over the condition of the lost? 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 10 records uh, the story, or that whole chapter records the story of Hannah. And Hannah was barren naturally. She was not able to have a child, and that really was a very upsetting thing in that day and time because you know, women who didn't have children in that day were just looked on with disregard. And so it was a shame to her. And so she went to the temple and she just began to cry. Verse 10 of Samuel chapter 1, it says she wept bitterly. The Hebrew actually says it was a cry of pain because she was naturally barren. Well, if someone like that would cry because they were naturally barren, how much more should the church cry if we're spiritually barren, if our altars aren't being filled with people who are coming to Jesus, if we're not in our personal daily lives uh, seeing people come to Jesus, there ought to be a weeping that comes forth because of that, a concern for people around us because they're going to hell. 
And hell is horrible. I've, I've listened to a few um, recordings of people who actually went to hell. Well, Brother Hagen was one of them. And I mean, it, it's horrific. I would, you wouldn't want that for your worst enemy, much less friends and family members and people that you work with and, and neighbors. Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah in the Old Testament was called the weeping prophet because he wept over the condition of Israel. And so in Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 21, he says, For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? And then in verse 9, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Does our heart break for the condition of the lost? When was the last time you prayed for the lost? You know, we, we like to quote that verse in Timothy where it says, first of all, you know, uh, prayer, supplication, giving of thanks, be made on behalf of all men for kings and those that are in authority. And we just skip right to the kings and those that are in authority. But the first group of people that we're told to pray for is all men. Well, how could we pray for all men? I mean, we don't even know all men. Well, we could only do it, first of all, by the unction of the Holy Ghost. But what do we know that all men have in common as a need? You know, not everyone needs food, not everyone needs shelter, not everyone needs clothes, not everyone needs, you know, the same thing, naturally speaking, but everyone needs the same thing, spiritually speaking. I believe that's an encouragement to pray for the lost before even we pray for our government leaders. And of course, we should pray for our government leaders, and that's a teaching for another time. But uh, if we could just consider the eternal consequences of people going to hell. I am so thankful. I thank the Lord all the time. I wasn't born in some village in India or someplace out in the jungle where I never had an opportunity to hear about Jesus. But man, we are hearing some amazing testimonies of how the prayers of the saints are causing uh, people in in native villages where the gospel has never been preached. And one night, uh, this young man that Larry was talking about last night, a missionary out of our church who goes up into the mountains of Venezuela, he's gone up into villages and there will be someone who has come from another village who's there waiting for him. Uh, another village on a mountaintop, you know, they had to plow through the jungles for three days to get over to this other village. But when, they, when he comes, they say, I saw a man dressed in white. He came to me in a dream and he told me to come to this village and that a white man would come and I needed to listen to what he had to say. And this has happened to him on several occasions. Several years ago, uh, Larry and I were privileged to uh, participate in an underground Bible school in Turkey. And all of our students came across the border from Iran. So these were Iranian students and um, most of them had never been around other Christians. Our interpreter told us that, and we looked at him, we said, well, if they've never been around other Christians, how did they get saved? And he looked at us like we had just landed in a spaceship. Like, well, duh, don't you know? And he said, Jesus appeared to them. And sure enough, over the course of the week that we were there, between classes, students would grab an interpreter and want to meet with us and give us their testimony about how Jesus had appeared to them. So Jesus is, and they were Muslims. All of them were Muslims before Jesus appeared to them. Well, I don't think that's just a random happening. I don't think that God just sat in heaven and said, hmm, okay, I like that one. I'll just send Jesus down. No, it, somebody was praying. Somebody somewhere. And so we need to continue to pray for people in, in these uh, Muslim nations, Buddhist nations, pray that Jesus will appear to them. Because our prayers are effective. It's happening. I would say, what, 85% of the students that we had that week got saved when Jesus appeared to them. And the two main leaders there on the campus, the cook and the, and the minister that was overseeing the whole Bible school, they had remarkable 
salvation experiences. I don't have time to go into it and tell you about them, but just remarkable salvation experiences when Jesus appeared to them. One of them was in prison. He's laying in his bed. He's waiting, uh, uh, awaiting probably a death sentence because of the crime he'd committed. And one night he just looked up to the ceiling and he said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And 30 minutes later, Jesus walked into his jail cell. And today that man is a pastor in Turkey. So praying for the lost. And as you pray for the lost, I guarantee you, you're probably going to stumble into this type of prayer. I know I did, but we'll talk about that later. Larry pointed out last night that in Hebrews 12, 22, Zion is the church of the firstborn. It talks about you've come to Mount Zion, you've come to the church of the firstborn. So when we read this next passage of scripture, keep in mind that when we hear the word Zion, it has a twofold application. Yes, it's talking about Israel, but it's also talking about the New Testament church. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 and 8 says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Nobody. Ever heard of anybody being born without their mother uh, going into labor? No, doesn't happen. Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And the answer follows. As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons and daughters. Yes, those things can happen, just like I taught Sunday morning. Cities can come to Jesus. Whole regions of the world can hear the gospel. If Zion will pray, if the church will pray, when Zion travails, she will bring forth her sons. Um, one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of somebody literally praying souls into the altar took place when I was in seminary in New Orleans back in the 70s, mid-70s. And I was going to a large Assemblies of God church there. And the pastor, I guess the church was probably, I don't know, maybe three or four times the size of this one downstairs, and then we had a balcony. And the church was just full all the time. But the pastor would preach and then when he would give the invitation for the lost to come forward, he would just lean over the pulpit and just begin to weep. And the more he would weep, the more people would come. And I mean every service, even Wednesday night, the whole front of the church was lined up with people coming to be saved. Prostitutes from off of Bourbon Street, mafia members, some of his best board members were former mafia members. I mean, it was just remarkable the salvations that were taking place in that church. And I know it was because of, of the travail on his part and probably several others in the church as well. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19 indicates that Paul travailed in birth for the Galatians to be born again. He says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So him saying he travailed in birth again means, firstly, he travailed in birth for them to come into the kingdom of God. Now he's travailing in prayer so that they will uh, be formed into the likeness of Jesus until Christ be formed in them. Well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus ever pray this way? John chapter 11, verse 35, I believe we have one example. At the tomb of Lazarus. Now, when I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, we would have these competitions where we'd have to memorize scripture, you know, and the boys always memorized this verse. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. At the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept, but I don't believe he was weeping out of sadness. I mean, he knew what he was getting ready to do. He knew he was getting ready to call Lazarus forth from the, the dead and everybody was going to be happy. I believe that weeping was, a, was, was part of travailing in prayer prior to raising Lazarus from the dead. And then we have Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Am I going so fast you don't even have time to turn there? I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. It says, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Now, this is New American Standard Version. To the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. 
Well, loud crying and tears describes to me travail. So Jesus knew what it was to, to pray this type of prayer. And then there have been others down through history. Charles Finney, you know, I talked about him Sunday morning, how successful he was as an evangelist. He would go into cities, and I mean, almost the whole city would be saved. I know one time he went into Rochester, New York, and the Barnum and Bailey Circus was in town. And back then, they didn't have all the entertainment options we have today. They didn't have televisions at home or anything. And so everybody went to the circus when it came to town. And so the city fathers told him, you're not going to be able to have any success here. You know, the circus is in town. And he said, oh, no. He said, the circus will have to leave town. He said, everybody will be at my meetings. And sure enough, they were. But, I mean, jails would empty out. Bars would close and be turned into churches. But his secret weapon was a man named, they called him Father Nash. And Father Nash many times would go into the city ahead of, of Finney, like several days or weeks, and he would just pray. That's all he would do, just almost around the clock he would pray. And then when Finney would be preaching, he would be up under the platform praying. And when Father Nash died, Finney quit. He didn't quit preaching. I think he took a pastorate. But he quit evangelizing. Because he recognized without that man's help, he couldn't have that kind of success. So Finney tells a couple of stories. Um, he tells one about, excuse me, I'm, I am overcoming. He tells uh, about two brothers. Finney was in town holding a meeting, and this lady invited him to come over to her home for dinner. Her husband was a doctor, and uh, the husband's brother, who was a farmer, I got, I look like, chipmunk up here. The husband's brother, who was a farmer, was unsaved. No, the doctor was unsaved. The, the brother who was a farmer was saved and had been coming to the meetings. So anyway, she invited the farmer brother, and her husband, the doctor, was also there. And so before they began the meal, she turned to the farmer brother and asked him to, to pray over the meal. Well, while he's praying, suddenly he starts weeping and groaning. Well, when he does, the doctor gets up and he just leaves the table, goes upstairs, closes himself up in the bedroom. So eventually the farmer got up and he went upstairs and he went into another bedroom and he starts, I mean, he just continues to groan and pray and travail and weep. And so Finney got up and went upstairs and joined the farmer in prayer. And uh, a little while later, they come out of their prayer room and they go to the door where the doctor had locked himself in and they listen at the door and they hear weeping from inside the door. And so they, the, the doctor eventually let them into the room and they led him to the Lord. Hard-hearted, but that kind of prayer broke down his hardened heart. Another time, Finney came into town and he went to this particular rooming house where uh, Father Nash had gone ahead of him and had taken a room there with a, another man sometimes helped him pray. And when Finney got there, the landlady or the lady that owned the boarding house, she met him at the door. She says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. She said, your friends. She said, they haven't come for a single meal. And she said, I've gone to the door of their room. She says, I think somebody's sick in there. She said, I stand at the door. And she said, all I hear is weeping and groaning. She said, you better go check on them. And he just laughed and he said, no. He said, everything's okay. He said, they're just praying for my meetings. When we uh, moved to the Czech Republic back in 1992, I'm going to switch this over. <laughs> I know this tape's going to sound interesting. We got to the Czech Republic in 1992 and there was this pastor that Larry had met there when he traveled in the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia a year or two earlier. And so we made friends with him. He eventually came to our Bible school and became a graduate. But we made friends with him. And so we spent some time at his house and he wanted to take us to his little garden in Eastern Europe. It's common for them to have this small plot of land and they grow fruit and vegetables and then can them so they'll have fruit and vegetables under communism. They needed to do that to have fruit and vegetables in the winter because you couldn't find them in the stores. And so he wanted us to go to his little garden. So it sat up on this hill, and the city was down in a valley. And so we just spent some time up there with him. And then finally, I guess he got to know us well enough, and he said, 
could I ask you a question? And we said, sure. He said, I don't know what's going on with me. He said, I come up here and I pray for my city. And he said, this groaning will start. He said, I'll just groan and I'll weep and I'll groan and I'll weep. And he said, I've been thinking that maybe I'm losing my mind. <laughs> and we started laughing, you know, not laughing, but, you know, chuckled. And we assured him he was not losing his mind, you know, that that was the Holy Spirit helping him pray for his city. And, I mean, the man was very relieved to find that out and to find that, you know, it was okay for him to continue doing that. I remember when it first started happening to me, back in 1981, I was working in Dallas for Vicki Jamison Ministries, and I was her prayer coordinator. And so my job was to not only pray for Vicki in her meetings, but we had all these prayer requests that would come into the ministry. And man, I never knew people could have so many problems reading through those letters and stuff. Oh my goodness. And I had other responsibilities at the office, so I usually would end up not having enough time to pray at the office, so I would have to take all these prayer requests home. So after dinner at night, I would sit in my living room and I would start opening these letters and reading them and praying over the prayer requests. And as I did so, over a period of a few weeks, suddenly I found myself just weeping and groaning as I would read these prayer requests. And I'm starting to think like this guy in the Czech Republic, I think, I'm losing my mind or something. Or I'm getting too emotionally involved with these prayer requests. This, this isn't right. And I just didn't know what to do. And one day a package arrived from a friend of mine and she had sent me some cassette tapes. That tells you how long ago it was. And the person on the cassette tapes was teaching on travail. And as I listened to those cassette tapes, oh, I was so relieved, you know, to find out I'm not crazy. I'm not too emotionally involved with these requests. You know, this is the Holy Spirit moving on me to help me pray effectively for these people. Also, while I was in Dallas, I had the unique opportunity of meeting Philip Halverson. Anybody ever heard of Philip Halverson? Um, well, several of a bunch of you haven't. Philip Halverson was probably one of the greatest intercessors I ever met. I mean, the man just lived a life of prayer. He was not a, a preacher, never was, never claimed to be. He, was, he had been a businessman, but at the time I met him, he was retired. But he and his wife, Fern, uh, lived in Minneapolis, but in the summer, uh, in the winters when it was bad in Minneapolis, they had a little home in Dallas and they would come and live there. And so Vicki would have them come in and pray with the staff twice a week. Well, there were only seven of us on staff, you know, so it was pretty up close and personal. And this man was just amazing, amazing. You guys probably saw him um, at some of Brother Hagen's meetings. But, I mean, he would pray a little in tongues, and then he would just pray stuff out in English. And um, he was just constantly praying. You'd be out at a meal with him, and he'd be talking to you just like I'm, you know, talking to you right now. And right in the middle of the sentence, he'd just burst out in tongues, and then he'd go on and finish his sentence in English like, you know, that was normal, and it was normal for him. I mean, that was just everyday life for him. But uh, the first time that Brother Hagen met him, he uh, it was holding, Brother Hagen was holding a meeting in Minnesota, Minneapolis and uh, the pastor came to him and said there's a couple in the church and they've asked me if they could take you out to lunch and Brother Hagin said normally I didn't go out to lunch with anybody you know when I was in a meeting especially not a stranger but he agreed to go out with the couple and so they had a nice lunch and then the man asked him could we just go for a short drive so the man drove out in the country a little ways and pulled the car off and he said I need to ask you a question Brother Hagin Brother Hagin said what he said, well, I've been praying lately. And he said, I keep praying about a cookie and a candy. He said, now, would God have me pray about a cookie and a candy? And Brother Hagin started laughing. He said, that's the nicknames of my two granddaughters. And, you know, those girls are both in the ministry today with their husbands. But he was praying for them way back then. He prayed for Jim and Tammy Baker and prayed out the whole TBN network and everything while they were still youth ministers at his church. I mean, the man just was amazing in prayer. Um, his wife said that he would often wake her up in the middle of the night, sitting straight up in bed, sound asleep, sitting straight up in bed, calling out names of nations and national leaders 
and situations in nations. And she said, sure enough, the next day or a couple of days later, it'd be on television or be in the newspaper exactly what he'd been praying about. The primary way that he prayed was interceding for others. And he went to heaven leading prayer. How about that? He was called on in a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota to come up and lead the congregation in prayer. And he joined hands with the pastor. And while he was praying, he just checked out. They both fell out on the floor and the pastor got up, but he didn't. And when they checked him, he was, he was gone. What a way to go, huh? And then there was a, a lady in uh, Tulsa. Her name was Sister Wilkerson. And she had a prayer group of ladies during the Vietnam War. Now, I'm going to tell my side of this story first. When I was a student in Bible college in Springfield, Missouri, this um, military man came and spoke in our chapel service one Friday night. And he talked about how when he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, that there were these ladies that prayed for him, prayed for all the prisoners of war. And he said, when I was was finally back in the United States, he said, I had an opportunity to meet these ladies and they knew everything about me. They already knew my name. They told me about stuff that had happened when I was a prisoner of war and different times when I almost gave up, you know, and just died. And suddenly I'd have a will to live and I just would decide, no, I'm going to live. I want to see my wife and kids again. I mean, just specific instances and I was pretty wowed by that, you know, as a Bible college student. But then after later, many years later, after I moved to Tulsa, I heard Sister Wilkerson's side of it. And these ladies, I think they met like twice a week in the afternoons to pray specifically for the Vietnam War and the prisoners of war. And she said as they would pray, they would literally see, I don't mean like I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, but they would see and, you know, you have eyes of your heart. If I said, brand new car, you're going to see something, right? Now, some of you saw a red Corvette. Others might have seen a, a Volkswagen or something. But everybody probably had some image quickly flash. Well, you didn't see it with these eyes. You saw it with your internal eyes, right? And so these ladies would actually see these guys in their situations, in the jungle where they were being held prisoner, they would see things going on in their lives. They would see like when they were ready to give up and they would pray for them until they knew that they had gotten the will to live again. And I mean, just literally prayed them through that whole ordeal. Absolutely amazing. I met another lady, um, got to spend a little bit of time with her. You may have heard of her. Her name was Rachel Tiller. She's in heaven now, Sister Wilkerson is. In fact, all of these people are in heaven. But um, I got to spend some time with Rachel Tiller, and she was married to an alcoholic. And she was a committed Christian herself. She never missed church, raised her son in church. But she said, I would, uh, my husband, I never knew when he was going to be home. But she said, I would send my boy to school in the morning. And she said, I would walk back in the house and go into my bedroom and she said, I would start praying in other tongues. And she said, usually I'd just slide down the wall and sit there praying in tongues until it was time for my boy to come home from school. Every day. Now, not everybody is, is called to that. But thank God for those who give themselves to that. And she, she told me just amazing stories. God would give her an address of a house there in her town. And then show her how to get there. And she said, I would get in my car and I would drive and he would say, turn here and turn there and I'd end up at that address and go knock on the door and sure enough, she said, there'd be somebody in there who was really sick that I needed to pray for or maybe they didn't have food, they'd run out of food and I was able to get food for them. Just always some need. She said, many times I found myself, this, is, this sounds weird, but I mean, I believed her. She said, I found myself under the desk in the Oval Office. And she said, I heard things that were going on, and I was able to pray about them. I'm telling you, things can happen in prayer. So what about the alcoholic husband? Well, years went by, and it seemed like nothing was changing, but she was just faithful to keep praying for him. One day, she's in the kitchen cooking, 
He comes in the back door, falls on his knees at her feet and begins to sob and ask her to lead him to Jesus. And she led him to Jesus and not long after that he went home to heaven. Her son today is a pastor. But she said the prayers that she, that she did, she said there was much groaning and much travail, much weeping. You know, like I said, you can't do that in the flesh any more than you can decide to operate in the working of miracles anytime you choose to. It's only as the Spirit wills and only as he leads, but we can make ourselves available to God to be used that way. I mean, some people hear about it and they're just like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. That sounds weird. But, I mean, if it helps bring souls into the kingdom of God... Why would we be against it? You can yield yourself to the Spirit when he comes upon you in travail. Maybe some of you have recognized in the past that he's moved on you like that and you held back because you were like me or like that guy in the Czech Republic. You thought, this this isn't right. This isn't God. I don't know what this is. Well, now you know. (laughs) It's the Holy Ghost. And we need to to be willing and available to yield to him when he moves on us like that. According to Isaiah 66, 8, it says, When Zion travailed, she brought forth her sons and daughters. It's a key element in the salvation of the lost. You know, my husband learned to pray this way because his pastor's mother had early morning prayer, like, what, four o'clock or five? Four o'clock, can you imagine? I'm not sure the angels are awake at four o'clock. <laughs> but Larry worked as a, a painting contractor, and so he would show up at church at 4 a.m. prayer. And she would start praying like this. And he didn't know what it was, but he just trusted her. So he got over by her. And he said, as he prayed like that, or prayed over by her, that got off on him. And he started learning how to yield to that type of prayer. So if you see someone who's in travail, I would encourage you. We used to encourage our students in the Bible school. If you see somebody, another student uh, enters into travail, go get around them. First of all, they need help. (laughs) Those of us that have prayed that way, you know, it's not an easy type of prayer. And, you know, when people get around you, it's like the burden, uh, for, for lack of a better word, it gets distributed It becomes easier. You can break through in a shorter amount of time than when you're just doing that on your own. Man, I read some stories of some of the guys that prayed before Azusa Street. They said they'd be in travail for 24 hours. I can't even imagine being in travail for 24 hours. They would pray all night long sometimes. So get around them because they need your help in order to pray that thing through. And then if you'll, like, like Larry, if you'll position yourself near someone who's in travail, that will come off on you. You'll learn how to yield yourself. It'll be easy then for you to recognize when the Holy Ghost moves on you and you'll be able to yield yourself. You know, we, we looked at Romans eight twenty six, where it says, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That word helps, when it says that the Spirit helps our weakness, the Greek actually means there to take hold together with against. Like if we had a big baby grand piano up here, I could go up there and I could try to move it, but I guarantee you I couldn't move it by myself. But I'd call on some of these guys, you know, to come up and and take hold together with me against the weight of that piano, and together we could move it. You know, the Holy Ghost isn't going to do our praying for us, but he will help us. He's a helper. Larry was a painting contractor. He said, I had helpers. Well, the helpers didn't do all the work, but they helped him do the work. They helped him finish the job. And so the Holy Ghost will take hold with us in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15 says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. You know, some, so much of the time we think praying in the Spirit is just praying in tongues. But praying in the Spirit is more a place in prayer than it is a type of prayer. It's a place that we get in prayer. And you can pray in your understanding in the Spirit. Have you ever been just praying in English 
And all of a sudden, it's just like words just poured out of you. I mean, you weren't even having to, to consciously think about it. The words just were there. It was like you hit a river. You hit a gusher of praying in English. The same thing can happen when you pray in other tongues. Many times, you know, you'll just start in your understanding because there's a need and you know you need to pray about it. And it may seem really dry at first, but then you sense, excuse me, <laughs> you sense the Holy Ghost taking hold with you. It's like most of us, well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have driven a stick shift car, right? So you start out in first gear. Well, you can only go so fast in first gear. You get her up to about 40 or so, and it starts groaning, you know, and you need to switch to a higher gear. What happens when you put it up in that higher gear, all of a sudden you shoot forward, right? And it's that way in prayer. When the Holy Ghost takes hold with you in prayer, it's like putting it in a higher gear, suddenly you shoot forward. You move into a place that you weren't in before, and it becomes a lot easier to pray. Your prayer is elevated to a higher level. Words pour out of you almost without effort. You get lost in the spirit. You can think you've only been praying five or ten minutes and you look at your watch and you've been praying an hour. That's when the Holy Ghost has taken hold with you. Or travail will come upon you. And when that happens, it's like the difference between splashing around in the edge of the river or being out in the middle where the current starts carrying you. When you're in travail, it's like the Holy Ghost is carrying you. And you're just cooperating with him. You don't have to do a lot of work. Just go with the flow. Although it is work. But it's, it's oh, I don't know how to describe it. It's work, but it's, hmm. Anybody got, got help from the front row here? It is work, it's labor. But you're so conscious of the Holy Ghost helping you in that labor, I guess is the best way I can describe it. Often if you'll persist in prayer, even when it seems dry, you'll break through into a realm where the Holy Ghost takes hold with you. And in fact, if I'm praying about a serious matter, like life or death, something like that, and the Holy Ghost is not taking hold with me, I stop and ask why. You know, if I, I need to know why. Why aren't you taking hold with me? Am I praying incorrectly? Is there something I need to change? Is there something I need to do different? Because I need an answer here. And he'll tell you. You know, James says you have not because you ask not. A lot of times the reason we don't have answers is because we're not asking. I can remember listening to Brother Hagin pray. And he would ask questions of God. And then he would wait for the answers. And when God gave him some answers, he would use those answers to formulate more questions. I remember one time, I don't, couldn't even pinpoint the time, but it was some meeting. And I was listening to him on the platform. And he was asking God about scheduling some meetings, I guess for the summer or something. And he was asking him, uh, Philadelphia or, I don't remember the other name of the city, let's just say Pittsburgh. Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, Lord. Oh, okay, Philadelphia. Well, do I have it in a church in Philadelphia or do you want me to rent an auditorium? And then the Lord might give him an answer to that. And then he'd say, well, like, should I do it in August or should I do it in July? And he would take the information that the Lord gave him and use it to get more information. Um, when you have a reason and a need to know why, it's good to ask why. You'll get some answers that way. Because I know if the Holy Ghost doesn't take hold together with me, I, I can't be successful in prayer without his help. When you're praying the prayers of supplication or intercession, always pray until you reach a note of victory. The old timers used to call that praying through. And people in the word of faith, you know, they laugh when they hear that praying through. You know, we're all already through, you know, through Jesus Christ. I'm at the right hand of the Father. I'm already through. And I just shake my head and think you're clueless. Yes, of course. And, and, and it, positionally, we're through. But we're dealing with some stuff. And when you know that you have got the answer to the prayer, when you've reached the victory, there will be a note of victory. There'll be laughter that'll break forth. There'll be shouting. 
I remember one time we were praying with some pastors about a serious situation in their church and we'd prayed for over an hour and all of a sudden, man, we got it. And both pastors just took off dancing across the front of the auditorium. We had our answer. There'll be singing, there'll be shouting, there'll be a note of victory. And you know, you won't probably reach that point every time you pray. But what, what's the neat thing about prayer is it's like uh, hooking wagons together on a train. Or what do they call those things? Wagons, not wagons. Uh, a, a train, boxcars. Yeah, cars, thank you, dear me. Uh, it's like hooking those boxcars together. You can hook them and you can unhook them. So maybe you've only got a certain amount of time to pray about this thing today. So you pray and then you unhook and you do whatever else you have to do and you come back the next day or two days later and you just hook up again and you just keep going until you get that thing prayed through and you hit that note of victory. It may take several days. But continue until that note of victory comes because that's your signal that you have your answer. You know, persevering in prayer, and that's what we're doing when we're praying for revival, we're, we're persevering in prayer. It's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Anybody ever have one of those 500 or 1,000 piece puzzles? I quit doing that. Because once I start it, I, I, I have to stay, I'll just stay up all night. I gotta finish it, so I just quit doing them. But you know, you get down to those last few pieces and it seems like they gave me the wrong puzzle at the store. Doggone it, somebody got in this puzzle and stole the pieces I need and put these pieces in and they don't fit. And I'd be sitting there pounding with my fist, you know, trying to make the pieces fit. But it's like prayer, persevering prayer over a big project like revival is like putting together one of those big puzzles. Every time we come together and pray, we put more pieces into place. Without the right perspective on praying over a long period of time, people can get weary in prayer. That's why attendance goes down at prayer meetings when you're praying for a big project like that because people get discouraged. They get weary in prayer, but if we can have this mindset, every time we come together, we're putting in more pieces to the overall plan of God. And every time we leave, the plan of God is further along toward being completed. You know, otherwise we can think we're spinning our wheels. But every, and this, this makes every person's part in prayer important. Each one of you in here has a piece of the puzzle. And if your piece isn't put in place, then we're missing something. You know, we tend to think, oh, well, the pastor's piece, you know, their, their pieces are the ones that are the most important. No, everybody's piece is important. It's not a complete puzzle if one or two pieces are missing. And so we can rejoice when we finish a prayer meeting because we know we just place more pieces into the puzzle and we're further along toward the completion of this thing than they, we were before we started. I used to tell our prayer people in Poland continually, we are changing the world from this small room. And I believed it because we prayed about all kinds of things. We prayed all over the world. We prayed for America sometimes. In persevering prayer, we take the victory by parts. It's like winning a war. You know, in World War II, there were many battles. One battle was not the end of the war. There were many battles. One battle is not the entire war, but we won one, and then we won another, and then we won another, and finally the war came to an end. Praying for revival in our nation or the last day's move of the Holy Ghost is a big project, and there's a lot of resistance from the enemy. But the day will come when some prayer somewhere will put the last piece in place. And when that happens, fasten your seatbelts because we are going to be in for the ride of our lives. So don't get weary in well-doing. Keep coming to prayer. Keep praying at home. Keep putting more pieces of the puzzle into place because we're getting near the end of this thing. I mean, I'm really sensing it. We're getting close to the end of the thing. Remember I talked last night, those of you that were last night, about how Brother Hagen had us praying for the Berlin Wall to come down and I don't think any of us believed in the beginning that that could ever happen. But every week, you know, we got a little bit more accomplished, a little bit more accomplished. We were putting pieces of the puzzle into place. And we knew we had that victory several years before it ever came down. We can get to the place where we know we got it. 
So I encourage you, keep praying. Don't get weary in well-doing, the Bible says. For in due season, you will reap if you faint not. Amen? And be open. Be open to yield to travail. If the Holy Ghost moves on you like that, don't resist. You know, even if you have to excuse yourself and go to another place, don't resist. I remember, um, which election was it? I think it was when George W. Bush was elected. Remember the hanging Chad mess, the debacle? We were in Poland, and uh, I had just been on the internet. We had to go shopping. We had to buy some groceries or something. And I had just been on the internet and, and seen what was going on and all the recount and all that kind of stuff. And, and we got into the parking lot of the grocery store and I sensed travail coming on me. Well, that isn't exactly the most convenient place to travail is in a parking lot. And so I, I told Larry, just go on into the grocery store, you know, get what we need or I'll join you later. I don't know, but I got to pray and I got to pray right now. And so I just got down in the floorboard of the car and I don't know what those Polish people thought that were parked around me. I really didn't care at that moment. I mean, it was just that urgent. And that travail came on me. I just yielded to it because I knew, man, there's lots at stake here. Um, so just make yourselves available. If you've never been used that way, all you have to say is, Lord, here I am. I'm available. I want to be used that way. I want to see the lost come to you. I want to see critical situations in the world uh, taken care of your way instead of the enemy's way. And I guarantee you, if you'll make yourself available, he'll use you like that. Amen. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.